This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Thank you, Matthew, and thank you all for coming. I know it's the last week of term, and you've all got lots of assignments and readings to do, and I'm really grateful to you for just showing up. Um, and I also want to thank Matthew both for introducing me so kindly, but also for his wonderful work in citizenship revocation, which has been so valuable to me. And, and when I first read it, I, I frankly was thinking, well, what, what more is there to say? Um, but then Canada stepped up and enacted its own citizenship revocation law, and that gave me a lot to say. So here I am. Um, I come to this topic of, a, of citizenship revocation through work I have done on the securitization of immigration post 9-11. And one, um, one way of understanding citizenship revocation, and here let me bracket this by saying I'm focusing on citizenship revocation uh, for misconduct while a citizen, if you will, crimes against citizenship. Right? That's what I'm talking about here. I will not be talking about citizenship revocation uh, for those who have naturalized through fraud or misrepresentation. That raises different issues. I'm happy to discuss it in questions, but just know for the moment, all I'm talking about is what I'd call citizenship revocation for misconduct while a citizen. So, I come to that through my work on the securitization of immigration post 9-11, where it would appear that immigration was seen as a kind of first responder to the so-called terrorist threat. The idea that problems that immigration um, or terrorism was a problem that migration law could solve. It could solve it by removing the security threat from our midst and displacing it somewhere else. Now this is kind of a parochial view of uh, the world of migration and, and terrorism, but it certainly proved very popular. Um, Citizenship revocation, I would say, kind of extends the functionality of immigration law as a form of um, security law, if you will, by turning the citizen into a non-citizen and thereby making him, typically him, available for immigration remedies, specifically deportation. So that's one way in which I, I understand citizenship revocation on a spectrum then in that securitization of immigration. It also fits with what a lot of U.S. scholars talk about, and it's kind of related, the crimigration phenomenon. Using immigration law to solve, if you will, uh, problems that are traditionally associated with the criminal law and the penal justice system. So in these ways, you can think of citizenship revocation as kind of an innovation. But there is also a way in which it is, of course, a revival. And it is a revival of what I would call banishment the extraction and expulsion of a member of society as a means of punishing him for some form of wrongdoing. Okay. Uh, what we see in its contemporary form, though, is what I would call two-step banishment or two-step exile. Right. What the UK and now Canada proposed to do is not actually expel citizens, but rather to proceed in two steps first, you strip the citizen of citizenship, then you take the newly minted alien and deport that person, right? So it is this kind of sequenced uh, approach to it, but I would argue that it can only be understood as a seamless kind of process, right? And where the end game is indeed expulsion. Now, um, there are, I think, two kinds of justifications that are um, advanced in support of citizenship revocation, and uh, one is, well, 
One is kind of conceptual, that there is some kind of core normative content to legal citizenship. There is something that it means to be a citizen, to be a good citizen. And if you don't fulfill those criteria, typically allegiance and loyalty, then you don't deserve to have it. And it is legitimate for the state to withdraw it from you. Another justification from it for it is simply instrumental, that citizenship deprivation, when combined typically with expulsion, uh, protects the state from threats to national security. These two are not coextensive, but they often tend to operate hand in hand in terms of those who justify it. I'm going to say, I'm going to, my position on this is uh, that denationalization for misconduct while a citizen is normatively unjust and I think quite possibly, quite likely, a rights violation under domestic, uh, supranational, and, and international law. Um, I want to go a step further and argue. Uh, for a less modest position, which is this, that the injustice of citizenship revocation is not exhausted by the procedural unfairness of actually existing citizenship revocation regimes in the UK and, and now more recently in Canada. And nor is the injustice exhausted when it results in statelessness. So I want to push a little further and say even when denationalization does not render somebody stateless, it is nevertheless unjust. Now, I'm going to start with what I used to end with in response to some questions I've received about or comments about my presentation. So let me say this, that although um, that my argument, I think, proceeds from and advances a certain set of premises about the nature of legal citizenship, um, which I don't make explicit in the paper, um, but I'm going to start off with here. And there is, I think, an idea here that citizenship revocation is a function of how one conceives of legal citizenship. And there are different ways of thinking about it. One is a formal ascriptive idea, that legal citizenship is a formal status, however one gets it, by birth or by naturalization. Once one is ascribed that status, that's it. One holds it, full stop, unless and until one gives it up. And one's performance as a citizen, good or bad, doesn't affect it. The citizen is a citizen. It is formal, it is ascriptive, right? And its qualities, the, the sort of intrinsic qualities that are important are formal. That is to say, it is secure, it can't be removed involuntarily, okay? And it is equal as between all citizens, the principle of equal citizenship, okay? But another view of citizenship legal citizenship might be that it is sociological. That citizenship should accord with what the Nottebaum case, from the International Court of Justice in 1954, calls the social fact of attachment. That citizenship in law should manifest and be consistent with one's greatest um, social lived attachment to a political community. Okay? So the citizen is the attached resident. You are living your membership through the social fact of attachment. And to the extent that there's a misalignment between legal citizenship and the social fact of attachment, the social fact of attachment ought to discipline legal citizenship. <clears throat> and finally, there's an idea of citizenship, legal citizenship, that is sort of um, thickly normative, if I can say. Normative all the way down. That... What it means to be a citizen is to be a good citizen. And a good citizen is one who displays certain qualities, and we can fill in the gaps as we will, but they typically involve something about allegiance and loyalty. Like going back to Calvin's case, right? The idea that you are, you know, you show allegiance to the sovereign. And that is a quality, of, an essential quality of legal citizenship. Okay? Now, 
it turns out that you know, my argument, in a sense, embraces, almost surprisingly to me even, what is a formal ascriptive notion of citizenship. But what I'm going to do is claim that that, in a sense, normatively, is the best understanding of legal citizenship for a variety of reasons. My argument isn't going to proceed systematically through analyzing these different understandings of citizenship and then arguing in favor of them. Instead, by talking about citizenship revocation the way I do, I hope I will, in a sense, demonstrate why I think the the most normatively viable one is indeed uh, the formal one. Now, what I'd like to do is just lay out for you some of the similarities and differences between how the UK and Canada approach citizenship revocation. Um, Canada hasn't yet implemented its law. Uh, It remains to be declared in force. Um, The UK has been, you know, pretty enthusiastically uh, engaging in citizenship stripping, at least compared to any other country, with the possible exception of Kuwait and Bahrain. And uh, between about 2006 and 13, uh, 53 UK citizens have been denationalized, um, about half of them uh, on the grounds of conducive to the public good, which I'll explain in a moment, and over 20 of them while they were outside the UK. So they're outside the UK, then the Home Secretary strips citizenship, which has the effect of barring them from entering the UK in order to actually appeal, which they are notionally entitled to do before the Special Immigration Appeal Commission. All right. So let me just start with the criteria for citizenship revocation in the UK and Canada. In the UK, it is a very broad grant of discretion. The Home Secretary can revoke citizenship when deprivation of citizenship is conducive to the public good. Um, As an administrative lawyer, it's hard for me to conceive of a grant of discretion that could be broader, less fettered, and uh, less disciplined, period. In Canada... Citizenship revocation is predicated on uh, conviction for a criminal offense, and in this sense is explicitly hitched to the criminal law. Uh, The Minister of Citizenship and Immigration has the discretion to revoke the citizenship of someone who is convicted for a list of offenses, which are called national security offenses in the legislation, but broadly speaking encompass terrorism offenses under the criminal law, offenses under the National Security Act, and a variety of offenses uh, under the Canadian Military Act. Um, There is also, in the Canadian legislation, provision for a direct revocation for serving in an enemy armed group, which isn't listed as a criminal offence. It so happens, however, that that serving in an enemy armed group is very similar to an element of the offence of treason under the criminal law. The difference is that treason, uh, which is an older offence, includes serving in the armed forces of an enemy state. What this does, for reasons that I'm sure will be obvious to all of you, is not require that that armed group actually be affiliated with a specific state. Both Canada and the UK are bound by the 1961 Convention relating to statelessness. Uh, I'll just mention here what you perhaps know, which is neither the UK nor Canada are parties to the European Convention on Nationality. So, both are constrained in their ability to create statelessness by the convention. In the UK, under the current law, which was amended after the Algeta case, which I can talk about later if you like, um, there can be no revocation for those who are British citizens by birth if in so doing the person would be rendered stateless. However, if the person is a naturalized citizen of the UK, he or she can be denationalized 
if, in the opinion of the Home Secretary, that person could obtain the citizenship of another state. Right? This is meant to respond to the Algeta case where, very briefly, Algeta had been a citizen of Iraq, was a successful asylum seeker in the UK, became a UK citizen. Under existing Iraqi law, he automatically lost his Iraqi citizenship because Iraq at the time didn't permit dual citizenship. Following the invasion of Iraq by UK and uh, US sort of armed forces, Iraq got a new constitution which allowed for dual citizenship and made provision for those who had lost Iraqi citizenship to apply to regain it. Now, the UK Supreme Court held that that didn't retroactively make Algeria a citizen of Iraq, contrary to the UK's argument, although it certainly would have been possible for Algeria to apply for and obtain Iraqi citizenship. So this legislative amendment that I've just described, this provision for allowing for the creation of statelessness if you could obtain another citizenship is really a direct reaction to the Algeta decision. Okay, in Canada, whether you obtain your citizenship at birth or by naturalization, you cannot be deprived of Canadian citizenship if it would make you stateless. But the onus is on you, the citizen, to prove that you would be made stateless by citizenship revocation, which, in effect, requires the citizen to prove a negative, prove that they are not a citizen of any other country. The upshot of this is that UK is that both regimes discriminate between dual and mono citizens, right? Dual citizens can lose their citizenship because they have another, they won't be made stateless, whereas mono citizens cannot. Both regimes do that. But the UK also discriminates between birthright citizens and naturalized citizens by making it possible for naturalized citizens to be made stateless. Okay. Now, the process. So uh, in the UK, there's pretty much no process prior to revocation. In Canada, there is a written process uh, with the minister having the discretion to also order an oral hearing if he so chooses. So what it means to have no process is illustrated by this. Um, Mohamed Sakhar um, was deprived of his uh, UK citizenship uh, on, because it was conducive to the public good. And um, a notice was issued by the Home Secretary on the 15th of September, and the letter notifying him was dated on the 20th of September, indicating to you not a lot of process in between. Okay. Now, so let me say that citizenship revocation can be situated against a landscape of related practices, state practices that bear some family resemblance to denationalization. And in my paper, um, I talk about deportation, disenfranchisement of prisoners, uh, what I call repudiation of the creation of de facto statelessness, um, civil death, um, sort of ancient practices of banishment and exile. And there are similarities and differences between each of these, and I won't spend time on them here. Happy to answer questions about it, though. What I will highlight here is the similarity between citizenship revocation and banishment, that kind of followed by expulsion, and uh, one of the sovereign's other favorite means of getting rid of a problem permanently, uh, which is the death penalty. Right? Now, you might think that that's a kind of um, extreme comparison to make, but of course... If you think about the work that is done by denationalizing and expelling somebody, right, from a political perspective, you are imposing a kind of political death. When somebody is stripped of their citizenship and expelled from the country, they are, in a way, as good as dead to the state. Right? It's a permanent penalty, 
And as far as the state is concerned, there is no political relationship anymore. This person doesn't exist for that state. And as if to underscore that, you may know that two of the UK citizens who were denationalized and expelled from the UK while they were abroad, so not so much expelled as they were abroad, they were stripped of citizenship, they couldn't return, were subsequently executed by US drone strikes. So sometimes political death can be a prelude to actual death. Now, um, in, when you hear you know, um, politicians speak, and, and a lot of pu- public discourse about citizenship revocation, you will hear this often. Citizenship is a privilege, not a right. You hear it from you know, the UK Prime Minister, you'll hear it from our Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, hear it from, you hear it from Hillary Clinton in the United States. Yeah, hear it from everybody. Citizenship is a privilege and not a right. And I'm not going to dwell on this a lot except to point out something that might be obvious, which is when this language is used, I think it is an appeal to a popular understanding of privilege that we might all share, which is, goes something like this. I feel really privileged to be a Canadian. I'm a citizen of a great country that protects human rights, that is prosperous, that gives me lots of opportunity, that is safe. I feel really privileged to be a Canadian, and I feel some obligation to be a good citizen as a result, to participate in our democracy, to do a variety of things. I feel privileged by that. Okay? There's a big difference between talking about privilege as a sentiment and privilege in law. Privilege in law belongs to the one who bestows the privilege, the benefactor. It doesn't belong to the beneficiary. It is a discretionary benefit which can be revoked, taken away, rescinded. That's quite different than a right. A right belongs to the rights holder, the one who bears it. And when you say that citizenship is a privilege and not a right in law, what you, are, what you mean then is it ultimately belongs to the state and not to the citizen. And it is up to the state to decide when, who, for how long one gets to hold it. And we're not talking here about the initial grant of citizenship by whatever rules one's talking about. We're talking about the retention of citizenship. It is an ongoing privilege on this understanding. Now, the implication then of calling it a privilege in law is, I would argue, the antithesis of what often accompanies this rhetoric, which is to say, we are doing this to enhance the value of citizenship, to strengthen citizenship. We, we arrogate to ourselves the power to take it away precisely in order to make it stronger by what, purifying the polity of those who would seek to undermine or threaten it. Okay? But note here, what it actually does to citizenship itself is weaken it, because it should be obvious, I think, that a privilege is weaker than a right. If you're a privilege holder, you are in a, you know, a much weaker position than if you are a rights bearer. Right? So to say that you treat citizenship as a privilege and this thereby enhances the value or strengthens citizenship, I would suggest, is paradoxical and even inconsistent. So, um, now, one of the features of treating citizenship in the way that um, the UK and Canada proposes to do is that it has both procedural and substantive consequences, right? So to talk about it as a privilege, in a sense, is to start to put it along a continuum of various other kinds of migration status. And it's noteworthy, I think, that, um, for example, in the UK, the standard for revoking citizenship, it's conducive to the public good, happens to be exactly the same standard for revoking indefinite leave to remain, right? So you see the alignment of citizenship now with a migration status. The procedure for revoking citizenship 
is, it is about the same as revoking indefinite leave to remain, which is pretty much none. Okay. In Canada, okay, interestingly, the procedure for revoking permanent residence, which is the equivalent of indefinite leave to remain, is actually better than the process for revoking citizenship. You actually get to go before an independent body called the Immigration Appeal Division, independent arm's length from government, an independent tribunal which will decide it. Here, citizenship revocation is actually done by the minister through a broad grant of discretion. Um, It's also the case that in order now to challenge a citizenship revocation, you have to ask the permission of a court, which is called leave to seek judicial review. The only other domain in Canadian administrative law where you have to seek leave to even ask the court to hear your case is immigration law. All of this is just a way of trying to illustrate to you through kind of practical examples what it means to... um, demote citizenship to something that becomes, I would suggest, more like an enhanced permanent resident status. Now, whether one thinks that's good or bad may be a, a different question, but I want at least to establish that this is a qualitative change in how we regard citizenship. Okay. Now, um, in turning to the kind of legal arguments that one might make about citizenship revocation. I'm, I kind of make a pitch that I think this is probably unlawful, but I recognize this is not, not everybody here is, is sort of into law, as it were, and so I'm not going to dwell for a long, you know, I'm not going to take, take you through each of the arguments uh, in depth. I'm just going to try to signal what the nature of the legal arguments might be, and I'm, again, happy to answer questions about it if there is greater interest. Okay, but... To begin with, I think it's perhaps worth noting that there are different ways in which states frame citizenship revocation, and here I'm bringing in the U.S. as well, even though the U.S. uh, found the practice of revocation of citizenship there unconstitutional in a series of cases culminating in the late 60s. So, one way of viewing citizenship revocation, I think, is as straight-up punishment. And the Canadian regime makes it easy to make that pitch because, in fact, it is explicitly hinged. It is hitched to a conviction for crime. Okay, so you can see citizenship revocation as punishment for a crime, or if you will, crimes against citizenship. In the United States, citizenship revocation doesn't exist as such. There is only a doctrine called expatriation. And this has to do with reasons relating to the nature of the U.S. Constitution, which protects constitutionally uh, uh, citizenship acquired through use so life. So in any event... Um, citizenship in the United States isn't subject to explicit revocation rather the doctrine is expatriation which notionally is the voluntary renunciation of one's citizenship and we're all familiar with I hope renunciation and its distinction from revocation but what happens in the US doctrine of expatriation is that there are many acts that one could take which would be deemed to be acts indicating an intention to renounce now, this is not so unusual, right? It, historically, if you, you know, in a regime in, in state systems that didn't permit dual citizenship, the act of taking out the citizenship in a second country would be deemed to evince an intention to relinquish citizenship in the first country. Okay, but it went further than that in the United States and included, among other things, uh, constructive expatriation through desertion. So, in the Second World War, a U.S. citizen deserted the U.S. Army not to go fight anywhere else. He just deserted. And in a case called Tropendellis, the U.S. Supreme Court said, this is really punishment disguised as expatriation. Right? This is not actually the voluntary severance of the citizenship bond. 
as if to say, you know, the citizen has uh, decided to withdraw from the social contract, which is the notion of ex- renunciation. Okay. But nevertheless, the formal character of expatriation in the United States bears this idea that citizenship is this relationship between state and citizen, and the citizen can withdraw from that relationship, and we're going to use that in order to um, sort of impute intentions to withdraw under certain circumstances. My point here is to say um, that model has some kind of theoretical appeal, but even the U.S. Supreme Court sort of saw through that in the case of uh, expatriation for desertion, saying, yeah, you make it look like it was an intentional renunciation of citizenship, but really you're just punishing him for deserting. In the UK, citizenship revocation is framed as risk management. After all, it's not required to have any kind of criminal conviction, not required to say that anybody actually engaged in wrongdoing in order to justify that deprivation is conducive to the public good. Okay? So there are these competing frames. Right? I want to suggest, though, my, my argument is, whatever the formal quality of citizenship revocation for bad behavior while a citizen or risky behavior as a citizen, it's really all punitive. So it's all punishment all the way down. Right? And so in order to make that argument, okay, I rely not just you know, partly on a kind of appeal to history, the idea that we understand historically that banishment was indeed punishment for misconduct and that there is more than a passing resemblance between the way it is used now and historical practices of banishment, whether we acknowledge, you know, whether the legislation formally acknowledges that or not. But there's more to it as well, I think. Um, in the, you know, in Canada, as I said, it's fairly easy to make the pitch that it's punitive. Um, when resorting to the kind of social contract metaphor, saying, "Look, we're not punishing you. Have just by your very act withdrawn from the social contract. You, by your act, have renounced your citizenship. We're not punishing you." And so I have kind of several responses to that about this kind of social contract metaphor. But the one I'll just mention here, highlight here, is that this notion of fundamental breach of the social contract is um, sort of infinitely protean and ultimately kind of vacuous. And the reason for that is that it is, with very little effort, possible to, de- possible to describe just about any kind of criminal activity as a kind of breach of the social contract, right? Um, in which we, ex- you know, so whatever kind of antisocial behavior one is, behaving, one is engaging in that results in a criminal conviction, it's not too hard to describe that also as a kind of breach of the social contract. And some theories of criminal liability have done that. So in that sense, it's kind of limitless. Now, some would argue that there's a qualitative, singular, important difference between those kinds of actions which lead to revocation of citizenship as somehow uniquely offenses against the state, right? crimes against citizenship, that distinguish them from ordinary crimes, and so may make for a valid distinction between uh, those actions which can be subject to citizenship revocation and those others. And I would just say, I don't think that that ultimately can withstand close scrutiny. Um, the idea that national security offenses, what, however you describe them, terrorism, if you will, is uniquely a kind of offense against the state, I think overlooks the fact that all criminal law is conceived of as offenses against the state. That's what distinguishes the criminal law and its exercise of public power from private offenses, tort, contract breach, and so on. Right? The idea that it is an offense against public order, the sovereign, you know, the king's peace, if you will. So all crime is conceived of as an offense against public order in that way. And I'm, I would contend that 
although superficially appealing, I don't think a distinction between so-called national security offenses and others can actually be sustained. All right. So my argument about the legality is made a little easier if you buy my claim that citizenship revocation is punishment, but you don't have to. Um, the last, I guess the last point I would make in respect of that, though, is in relation to the idea that there is a distinction to be drawn between um, criminal punishment or criminality and risk regulation. Okay? So this idea in the UK, the argument that's floated, is this is just regulating risk, not punishing somebody for a crime. And my short version of the argument is that in fact, if you look closely at the evolution of the criminal law recently, you will see that increasingly the criminal law is being deployed precisely in the service of the regulation of risk, this idea of preventive justice and so on. And I know some of you in this room have done a lot of work on that. So again, the idea that a sharp distinction can be drawn between risk regulation and criminality or, or you know, a punitive uh, regulation of conduct, I think, again, is overdrawn. So that would be my response to the kind of UK position of, on um, citizenship revocation as uh, risk regulation rather than punishment. So assume for the moment that you kind of buy my argument that it is punitive, no matter how it's framed formally. You don't have to, but my argument's made a little easier if you do. But there's more to be said, even if you don't. I think it's still, there are still significant legal problems with this. Now. The sources of legal constraint that are applicable to the UK and to Canada are not identical. Okay. So in Canada, you have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. UK, you have the European Convention on Human Rights. You also have the Treaty on the Function of the European Union. Both states are parties to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the UN Statelessness Convention. And I don't want to minimize the differences between, for example, the Charter and the European Convention or what this all means for testing the legality. Um, I think that the arguments are broadly applicable but not identical. And let me state at the outset, concede that I am not an expert in the European Convention on Human Rights, okay. much less the Treaty on the Function of the European Union. Um, it is also the case that different legal orders, Canada and the UK, offer up different legal resources with which to make arguments. Um, and there are certainly significant differences between, as an aside, between what the Supreme Court of Canada has said about prisoner disenfranchisement that has great resonance for arguments about citizenship revocation that simply don't apply in the UK because, in fact, the jurisprudence is different. So, okay. So, there are, in my view, just a wide range of potential legal challenges that could be made to both the UK and the Canadian regimes. Um, and the Canadian one has not yet gone into effect. The British one has, and, and I'm surprised and curious about why more of these challenges have not been brought. Most of the litigation, as I understand it, has focused on the issue of statelessness, um, but has not taken on these other issues. And I'm sure there's an explanation for that. I just don't happen to know what it is. Now, um, if you <coughs> buy into the idea that citizenship revocation, especially when combined with expulsion, is essentially punitive, then there is a cascade of procedural entitlements that flow, right, that are imposed on a state before it can impose punishment, certainly under the Canadian Charter. I think the argument has to proceed a little bit differently under the European Convention. Okay. But even if you don't buy it as punishment, right, I think it should be an easy argument that citizenship revocation is drastic, dramatic, and profound in its impact 
right? and that you need a process that satisfies the doctrine of notice and an opportunity to be heard. If you understand it as punitive, then you need a fair and open trial. You don't get either of those under either regime. Okay? You also need an independent and impartial tribunal. These are kind of like basic rule of law kind of procedural things, right? You don't get that either, right? Citizenship revocation here is not a criminal penalty that an independent impartial judge can impose, right? It is done by a member of the executive through a, a fairly unconstrained exercise of discretion. In Canada, it's retrospective, uh, and there's also a concern about the reverse onus with respect to statelessness that I mentioned that would be constitutionally suspect, as well as Again, this depends on the punishment claim that citizenship revocation is, in effect, double punishment. You're taking somebody who is punishable or punished for one offense and then adding on a second. On the substantive side, I think it should be fairly easy to argue that the UK, conducive to the public good standard, is so vague, so broad, so potentially arbitrary that it fails the most basic rule of law test for notice to the citizen of what the law is. Um, There is, I think, an argument to be made that whether you buy it as official punishment or not, it constitutes cruel and inhuman treatment, if not punishment. Now here, there is a, a, a wide kind of ranging argument to be made about it, and I think just for present purposes, I'll just say a couple of things. And one is that here, drawing again to the analogy with the death penalty, right? Citizenship revocation is, defies what we take as modern theories justifying punishment. Right? So normally punishment has to be justified or is justified by you know, specific deterrence, general deterrence, and rehabilitation. Right? You gotta know, there's like no rehabilitation here, right? You are deprived of citizenship and you're gone, much like the death penalty, right? It's permanent, it is pure retribution. And it is retribution that trades, I think, on an implied symmetry that we see in the death penalty, right? Eye for an eye. You take a life, you pay with your life. Here, you commit a crime against citizenship, you pay with your citizenship. This, of course, turns on whether you buy this notion of there being unique and distinctive crimes against citizenship, right? But I think that is the kind of analogy that is drawn here. And I would suggest that it is, you know, it is a defective one. Right? It, as I said, it fails on principles on modern penal theories of the legitimacy of forms of punishment. Okay. Um, as for its deterrence value, uh, interestingly, not a lot of people actually defend this as uh, having a lot of useful deterrent value. Right? Because for one thing, um, you would think that rather than um, send somebody abroad who is a uh, danger, it might make more sense to actually be able to, let's say, mm, prosecute them or convict them or keep, you know, do something, right? That this idea of kind of dumping them in somebody else's neighborhood really displaces the risk. It doesn't resolve the risk. This is particularly true to the extent that we characterize terrorism as a global threat. And it is interesting, I think, that Canada in its criteria for citizenship revocation says not only that conviction for a terrorism crime in Canada will suffice for revoking citizenship, but says conviction for terrorism in any other country will suffice to revoke Canadian citizenship. So if a Canadian's convicted of terrorism in Egypt, as a Canadian journalist recently was, then notionally Canada can withdraw citizenship because apparently being a terrorist in Egypt, allegedly, makes that person 
unworthy of citizenship in Canada. But if that's the logic, then it undermines, of course, the deterrent value and the logic of displacing, you know, of expulsion and, and um, uh, banishment as such, as advancing or protecting security. The other thing you might notice is that with the rise of ISIS and this concern about citizens going abroad to fight with ISIS, you see more and more use of uh, passport confiscation to actually prevent people from traveling. Right? So if preventing people from going somewhere is seen as a better deterrent, right? then what's going on with the idea that citizen denationalization and expulsion is the deterrent? Right? So there's a whole lot to be said here about, its, about, the, about how rational it is um, as a form of deterrence. Okay. Um, I'll say something about statelessness here. Well, let me, I'll skip to a couple and finish up on statelessness. So, family and private life is protected under the European... Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Family and private life is protected, prevent, protected under the European Convention on Human Rights, Article 8. It's not in the Canadian Charter. Just as this argument is used to uh, protect against deportation of long-term permanent residents, so too would you imagine it being invoked with respect to the denationalization and expulsion of citizens. Um, Article 12.4 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights prohibits the arbitrary denial of one's right to enter one's own country. Right? So it's, it's framed in this way. You have... Um, no one shall be deprived of no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of the right to enter his own country is how it is actually framed his own country is deliberately chosen it isn't his country of nationality or citizenship and one understanding of it that I think is sustained in the travaux préparatoires and, and even in the recent jurisprudence is that it is precisely or one of the objects of framing it in that kind of language is in fact to protect against this kind of denationalization you know, and uh, this two-step exile. Right? To preclude an argument that says, well, you know, if it, you framed it as no one shall be deprived of the right to enter his own country of nationality, well, we're not doing that. This is no longer your country of nationality, so we're not preventing your right of entry. So one argument about why the ICCPR Article 12.4 is framed as own country is precisely to get at something like this. Okay? So... Uh, um, and of course, one of the issues in the recent case of mm, B2, currently before the UK Supreme Court, concerns whether by depriving him of UK citizenship, B2, whose name I think is Fan, will also, of course, be deprived of his EU citizenship, which is dependent on having citizenship in a member state. And so, owing to a, a you know a series of you know series of cases beginning with Rotman and moving moving onwards. Uh, the argument, an argument may be referred to the European Court of Justice about what requirements are imposed on a member state if what they seek to do is not only remove citizenship of the UK, as it were, but actually, in, a, in effect, um, annihilate somebody's EU citizenship as well. Right? So that's another argument that is waiting out there to be made. As I understand it, and here I'm I'm trying to learn EU law, but it's <laughs> not all the way there yet. But as I understand it, if what is at stake is the law of EU citizenship, it may also raise to the fore a requirement of proportionality in a way that the UK law does not of its own accord uh, impose. So there are these constraints, as it were, that come about uh, in the UK as a result of its membership in the EU that, for example, would not apply to Canada. 
Okay. I'm going to say a few words about... How am I doing for... Am I okay for time? Uh, you have about 12 minutes. Okay. Yeah, okay. I can do that. I can do that if I can keep this thing moving. There we go. Um, okay. So, I want to talk about statelessness a little bit. Because, as I said, I'm trying to make the stronger argument that even where uh, statelessness is not the result of denationalization, we still have a problem, even a problem in law. The idea that citizenship revocation is unproblematic if it does not cause statelessness, if someone has another citizenship, I think... um, presumes or presupposes that citizenship is fungible, right? That one citizen, a citizenship here is the same as citizenship there. Being a citizen in Mali is the same as being a citizenship in the UK. And as long as you've got a citizenship somewhere, that's all that counts, right? You are, you know, you are a member of some kind of state somewhere. From a statist perspective, from the international state system, you can see why this might be the case. You've got first an assumption of the formal equality of all states, and so why not the equality of all citizenships? And from a state perspective, what really matters about statelessness, and it does matter to states, is to be somewhat um, flippant about it, that they have an address label to stick on somebody's forehead so they know where to send them. And it doesn't matter if they have two as long as they have at least one. And any one is as good as any other. So it's important from state perspective that people not be stateless. It's not just a human rights concern. It's important to states. But it doesn't matter what state as long as there is a state. Now, um, I want to suggest that this is not consistent with a kind of internal individual perspective on citizenship. But let me back up, let me, well, I'll develop that idea. I want to say, I want to contend here, put out for consideration, that that may be how citizenship looks externally. But internally, citizenships are not fungible. Whatever the particular uh, combination of connections, values, rights, um, relationships that one has with one country are not the same as whatever one has with another country. And again, I'm not speaking normatively here, I'm speaking more sociologically. So the idea that one citizenship can be replaced by another simply isn't going to be true from the experiential perspective. And moreover, if you cut off, if you sever somebody's connection to a state, they are no longer a citizen, you have made that person rightless with respect to that state. Now, this may seem like a kind of extreme comment, a kind of throwback to Hannah Arendt, right? Because a lot of people will say, well, that's not really true. You know, citizenship is no longer the right to have rights, right? Lots of people who are not citizens enjoy virtually all the rights of citizenship, And there's been lots of work on cosmopolitan citizenship and so on that, that... transnational, post-national citizenship that develops that idea. Citizenship is no longer the prerequisite to the enjoyment of a whole range of rights. But it so happens that in this sense, citizenship, well, the rights, those rights that we are talking about can only be enjoyed if you are physically in the country. So residence happens to be, and lawful residence and permanent residence happens to be a precondition for the enjoyment of virtually all rights. You can't enjoy them if you're not there. And what denationalization combined with banishment does is remove the right to enter and remain. So the right to enter and remain isn't just one of many rights that you can think of that are in a list of human rights documents. The right to enter and remain is the precondition to the enjoyment of most other rights that are protected, secured by a state. 
So when you are denied the ability to enter and remain, which is what happens when you are denied you know, stripped of your citizenship, then you lose the ability to enjoy all the other rights that go with it. And in that sense, you are rendered rightless with respect to that state. Whether you have rights in respect of some other state is an interesting question, but it doesn't compensate, it doesn't make up for, it doesn't replace what has happened in relation to that state. Now, um, to the extent that citizenship, the, the prohibition on statelessness is, uh, means in effect that citizenship revocation uh, is available for dual citizens but not mono-citizens, right? then what emerges from that? Well, what emerges from that then is, going back to the discourse of privilege and right, that citizenship is a privilege for those who are dual citizens, but a right if one is a mono-citizen. That is, you're more secure in your citizenship if you only have one citizenship. Your, the, the security of citizenship is, in fact, diluted by multiple citizenship. And I think this may not seem intuitive, right? Because we think of citizenship is good, citizenship is a good. So if one citizenship is good, two must be better, and three better still. But in fact, what this reveals is, in fact, the opposite going on, right? That you are, in fact, made more vulnerable if you have more than one citizenship. Now, the idea of being able to strip citizenship of someone in a world where statelessness is prohibited has a kind of um, double effect. It means not just that you are not my, a member of my country, but it entails the claim that you are more a member somewhere else. And when we think of the iconic target of denationalization now, right, it is the global terrorist. Right? The problem with the global terrorist, whoever that person is in our collective imagination, is that as part of the story we tell, they are a citizen of nowhere. They are like the pirate, a common enemy of all humanity. So the claim that they sure don't belong to us because of their normative, you know, because of their bad conduct, and they belong to others, right, it seems problematic, right? They may not belong to us, but the very criteria we use to say they don't belong to us will, almost by definition, mean that they equally don't belong anywhere else, right? And the absurd, you know, and to sort of close on this, um, let me just give a kind of an example to make us think about, well, if we think citizenship deprivation as the UK or Canada does it is a good idea, that is, people who are really, really bad citizens don't deserve to be citizens and subject to the prohibition on statelessness, you know, we ought to be able to strip them of citizenship and get rid of them. So why don't we just think about what kind of world would we have if everybody behaved like that? Okay, so such a good idea, why don't we all do it? Why doesn't every state do that? So here's what would happen. Imagine a citizen, uh, a dual citizen of Canada and the UK. Imagine that dual citizen of Canada and the UK commits a terrorist offense in the UK and is convicted for it. Right? Well, under Canadian law, given our citizenship revocation law, that person can be stripped of citizenship because they were convicted of terrorism in the UK. Under the UK law, they can be stripped of citizenship because their citizenship no longer conduces to the public good. Neither state can create statelessness, though. So what happens? What do you get? A really stupid race to see who can strip citizenship first. To the loser goes the citizen. Right? I want to suggest that you know, this kind of absurdity, um, you know, if I can just end with that, I think reveals something about the limits of using citizenship law as a tool to resolve threats to national security, uh, terrorism, um, concerns about allegiance and loyalty and so on. 
maybe just given the time, I'll just end there and, and open it up for questions. Thank you. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.